Everybody, welcome to Twig 56. Today we have just myself, Joe Kim, Eric, and guest host Ken Go from Decca Games. Oh, we've got Adam as well. Adam, I almost forgot since uh, you, we, we had a scare with you. Yeah, I almost uh, almost had a kid. Almost. Yeah. <laughs> They'll do it. Awesome. They'll do it. But today we're going to be covering four articles. The first is Decca Games plays free-to-plays long tail buying four one-time hits from Gree from PocketGamer.biz. The second is Super Evil Megacorp raises $10.5 million, moves on to new game, and hands Vainglory off to Rogue Games by VentureB. The third is Supercell Cans Rush Wars by PocketGamer.biz. And finally, BlizzCon 2019's biggest announcements, Diablo 4, Overwatch 2, and an apology by Polygon. So we've got a bunch of updates today, so please bear with us for a few minutes. The first is Mishka and I just got back from a week in Israel at GameFest, which was a really amazing event. And if any of you guys are interested, please check out our adventures. I've got a, uh, a YouTube video on the Game Maker's YouTube channel, so um, feel free to check that out. Second, congrats to Fun Plus Phoenix, who won the League of Legends World uh, Championship in a 3-0 stomp of G2 Sports. So congrats to Andy Zong and the rest of the Fun Plus crew. I also noticed from the videos that Fun Plus has not updated the t-shirt. So while I appreciate having a current t-shirt from five years ago, I, I think you guys might, might want to update that. Uh, third, we have the Iron Source GPM or Game Product Managers event coming up in San Francisco next month. Uh, so if any of you guys are interested in that, it's gonna be December 4th. Feel free to DM me on Twitter if you're interested in attending. And uh, finally, from my side, I'll be at India GDC next week. So any, if anyone else will be out there, please give me a shout out. Uh, and then, sorry, we've got, again, we've got a lot of updates. So a few updates on behalf of Mishka. So first of all, uh, Mishka wants to start opening up our sort of secret deconstructor of fun Slack channel. So, uh, so if you are interested in joining that Slack channel, the requirement for entry is to, is to actually write a blog post on Deconstructor of Funds. So if you guys do that, you can get access to this secret Slack channel where there are lots of rumors and lots of stuff happening on that Slack channel. Anyway, um, uh, also Mishka will be at both Slush and RovioCon. So if any of you want to meet up with him, DM him on Twitter as well. And he'll also be hosting the press start event at Slush as well. And finally, Mishka is hosting a breakfast event on the 20th for uh, sort of the best game making talent in Finland. And if you're interested in that, please uh, DM Mishka for that. And finally, let's get to our guest, Ken Go from DECA. Welcome, Ken. Thanks, guys. Happy to be here. Yeah, I thought we could first start by just asking you to do a quick intro about yourself and tell us a little bit more about Decca Games. Sure. Well, I've been in the industry for more than 10 years, uh, all the time, mostly in live operations. The, the I guess the thing I'm most known for was um, being an early employee of Kabam. Uh, I was the at the end the general manager for their Berlin office, which was their European headquarters. Um, I was also the executive producer for Kingdoms of Camelot when it first launched, uh, well after it launched on Facebook. Um, and I built out most of the central teams, the central live ops teams for uh, for Kabam first in San Francisco and then eventually in Berlin. Uh, I started Decca Games uh, three and a half years ago basically seeing the need in the industry for live services. I, I realized that um, basically had my experience at Kabam was that as bigger companies have bigger portfolios, they have trouble focusing on so many projects. And when you have one game like Constance of Champions that's making 80, 90% of your revenue, it's really hard to focus on the, the rest of the portfolio even though those products may be really good and really good businesses for other developers just for, for that single single developer, it's just not a priority anymore. Uh, and Kabam ended up divesting a whole bunch of their products and that gave me the idea to set up Decca Games. And the whole idea behind Decca Games is that we wanna see games last another 10 years and that's why it's called Decca. And uh, we take over the entire live operations, including development, uh, customer support, community management, um, events and promotions, everything so that the original developer um, can just move on to the other things. Uh, we've done that. We've taken over six games uh, to date, some from 
Kabam, some from Gree, and one from a studio called Two Men and Dog. And uh, we're, we're looking to grow. Great. And so before we jump into the first article, Eric, Adam, do you guys have any updates? No. Uh, no, I think... Yeah. Oh, updates. No, no updates for me. Well, I guess I, I did get the thing with Warner Brothers, so I'm going to have to be <laughs> careful how much trash I talk about Warner Brothers. <laughs> That's okay, so jumping into the first article, Decca Games plays free-to-play's long tail, buying four one-time hits from Gree. And so Pocket Gamer reported last month that live ops specialist Decca Games, who, um, and, and this is, you just heard from Kango from Decca, acquired four mobile game titles, uh, Knights and Dragons, Crime City, Modern War, and Kingdom Age. In addition, as Ken mentioned, they also operate two other uh, titles, Realm of the Mad God and Zombie Catchers. And as Ken mentioned, they're based in uh, Berlin, and he's with us now. So I, I thought we'd ask you a few questions from the uh, related to the business in this article, Ken. And the first is, I believe that, you know, this article was published last month, but from my understanding, if I remember hearing the, the rumors in the industry correctly, didn't this transaction happen like a few years ago? So we did a deal a couple of years ago with Greed to be an operator for them. So they were still the publisher of record. They were still the owner of the game, but we were working on their behalf. Yeah. Uh, so we did this deal with their San Francisco team yeah, more than two years ago, we took over the operations and we had um, a developer that they had chosen to do some of the development. We were doing just uh, the, the live ops part of it. Okay. Um, and then two years later, we continued that on, eventually taking on a bigger bigger portion of the development as well as continuing on the, the product management and the live operations. And eventually, um, we came to an agreement that, that said that, okay, we just want to buy it out and take it over because... You know, it, this is a strategic business for us and not really not really big enough for them. Got it. So this is like the full buyout of, of those four games that you guys started live operating a few years back then. That's right. Yep. Okay. And then in terms of like the, the size of your company and the types of people you employ, you know, around the specialization in live ops, could you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, um, so we're over 90 people now. Uh, we're kind of unique, though, in the industry where we have um, a mostly distributed team. So the, the headquarters and the core of the leadership is here in Berlin. Uh, but we have uh, the rest of the company is distributed across the world, mostly in Europe. But we have different types of people running the gamut from engineers to product managers to pure just live ops managers, QA, customer support. Uh, community, uh, game designers. Um, so basically everything that you would have in a studio, uh, we have it, but the only difference is that we're distributed and we're 100% focused on live games. Got it. And in terms of the, the, this live operating model that you guys have, so how are you guys able to more profitably operate the, these games from the original owners? And I, I mean, I think you kind of mentioned one aspect, which was focus. And then it sounds like because you're distributed, there may be a cost structure advantage. But are there other things that you guys are doing to you know, kind of drive higher profitability or, or run the operations more efficiently or effectively? Yeah, I mean, because we are... Uh a new company, uh, somebody that's 100% focused, we've built our organization to be very, I guess, operations focused, and we don't have a lot of overhead. We don't have a lot of, you know, big central services that need to be there in order to support uh, new game development. Right. So that's a, one of the advantages. So every game that we bring in, we set up a team specifically focused on those projects built to last for multiple years. Uh, and with the whole mindset of making the players, the, the players that already love that game, just continue to play and driving the performance of that game. So there's there's one portion that's a bit of just organizing the company properly so that there's not additional extra overhead. The other one is the distributed nature of the team such that we're able to find people who have a passion for live services and also in cost-effective cost locations. Right. But then also just making the games perform better that we've seen really good in performance on, on some of our games, uh, either in you know growing the game or leveling out the churn. Right. And in terms of like just taking a, a, a kind of a broader focus in terms of the space, I know that there have been a few other companies that are in the space or have tried entering the space, um, you know, certainly Rocky, but then other companies like uh, Maple Media, 
uh, Amber, Mediatonic. Who, who are some of the other guys? Uh, and, and then, you know, we'll, we'll talk about Rogue Games and Vainglory later on the podcast. But, you know, how would you characterize the, the space in terms of other players and things like that? Yeah, I think it's just very much a developing market. It's very immature. Uh, I think it's a huge problem that needs to be solved in the industry as more games get launched and very, very few people actually really wanting to focus on live services. I think this only grows. Um, but at the same time, it's a very difficult business. It's you know taking over other people's code, other people's designs. It's not what everybody wants to do. Most people don't get in game, into games just to do this type of work. A lot of people come into games to be more creative and to, to focus on the artistic part of it and not really the operational part of it. So I think that's why you don't really see a lot of competition in this space. Um, but I, again, it is a growing opportunity. And I think over the next couple of years that it's just only going to expand. In terms of competition, I don't, you know, I think I like to say that, you know, we're the biggest in the industry right now, or at least the well-known. Yep. Uh, Rock U is out of the business already. So yep. they went bankrupt a couple of years ago. Um, Maple Media, I, I don't really know, like, really what they're um what they're doing now, but they were much more focused on ad operations, as far as I know. And then I think from what I've seen, focus more on apps than games. Right. Um, there is a company called uh, Tag, which is more like a work for hire service. I think Amber is kind of the same way. Tag and Amber are kind of similar. Okay. They're kind of like, uh, they work like a more like a man month type of model where you they come in for like, certain amount of time to continue running a game and work on certain features, but they get directed. As far as I understand it, the original developer has to direct them in order to do the things that they want to do. Uh, what they, you know, basically a product manager or a product lead will tell them the direction, give them the roadmap. Yeah. Uh, where we're very different. So we have more of like ownership over the product and we like to take over games. And I've seen from my past being in publishing that, you know, some when the more people you have trying to run a product or make decisions, just less gets done. So our theory is people come to us because they trust that we can we can make the game perform better than they can or at least as good as they can. So there isn't a lot of, you know, like having needing to direct us what to do. We take over the entire operations and the original developer either gets a check and walks away or continues to get, you know, recurring checks um, as we continue to operate the game for them. Got it. And one last question before I hand it over to you, uh, Eric, Eric and Adam, but why, why did you guys choose to set up shop in Berlin? Was that more, you know, kind of opportunistic since you were already there or, you know, some of the other guys would want to be close to platforms um, to, to try and get, you know, sort of platform support or things like that. But just, just wondering why, why Berlin? Yeah. I mean, the first one was mainly because I was already here. Um, secondly, I think, you know, I, I was from California, so that would have been the other the other option and our model is really based that's a lot of it is based on cost efficiency too so we need to be able to have a cost efficient uh, resourcing model yep. so that's initially why we set up in berlin that i had uh, my own network of people coming from kabam and that i knew from the industry that helped me set up that became the first employees of the company so i had that foundation and basis because i was already here but then and also like these people are you know some of the best people I've worked with in the industry and they are just way much way cheaper than people in California for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. All right, Eric, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess as it relates to the next story about super evil megacorp, um, you know, Mike, uh, Delot, who we both worked at, at Kabam at rogue is picking up live services for Vainglory. It seems like he's pissing in your pool. So I, you know, I thought he was focused on publishing, not running live services. Is this kind of another competitor for you? I guess apparently, you know, I um, I haven't talked directly with him about it, but I think he's he's well, Rogue sees itself as a publisher, and this is just another flavor of publishing, I guess. But I know that he's not 100% focused on it like we are. You know, he's got 70, 80 games that he's going to publish this year or something to that, and like working on arcade Apple Arcade games yeah. as well as premium games. So, you know, it's, he's, he's kind of, from what I can see from the outside, working on a lot of different things. Uh, at Kabam, he was, you know, the BD guy. He was running the BD team. So I think he has a really great relationship with the platforms where I was running live ops for, for Kabam. So I'm, I'm definitely more focused on the operations of games than I think than Rogue is. And from the article, you know, they stated that they're just outsourcing the operations to another developer. So I think in some ways, 
um, we are in competition, but in other ways, we're just really going about it in different ways. And uh, the, the opportunity is out there. I think it's only growing. And I think you're going to see more and more people taking on these core services from other developers because they just don't want to do it anymore. Right, right. So perhaps, I mean, he's the ultimate BD guy, right? He knows everybody in the industry and he talks to people all the time. That's all he does. So he may he looks like more a more of a broker for this deal to some degree with the other team in India maybe, not not he's not building out this com- competency internally it looks like. I think he's hired some product people though. So oh really? I, yeah. yeah. Cool. Well, good for him. I'll have to catch up with him soon. Um, all right. Well, the next article is about super evil megacorp. Oh, unless Adam, do you have anything for Ken? Oh yeah. Sorry, I, I was actually just curious. Um, talking about your business model, right? Um, what are you looking at when you're looking at games? Uh, when you can actually see upside, like what types of genres, uh, what types of metrics are you looking at when you can say that you can, you know, this is a game that you guys want to acquire from another team? Yeah, I mean, so there's there's two different models which we work with with other developers. So one is we will just acquire the game outright. And the other one is that, you know, we work on their behalf as an operator. But in in, in both cases, what we want to see is uh, the longevity of the product. So if... uh, we don't, we're not in to build up a team and then just jet out a couple months later. Uh, we don't want to work on a project basis. We want to come in and you know, work on a game for five to 10 years because we think it's going to last and that's the type of business we want to build. Um, so when we look at it, it doesn't really matter what genre per se. Obviously, the more mid-core, core-oriented games have those kind of dedicated user bases who have depth of content and depth of design. Um, so those are the ones that we lean towards, but, you know, we acquired Zombie Catchers, which is a very casual game. And that game also showed us that there's other ways to have longevity. That game makes, um, sorry, it gets 2 million organics every single month without, without, without fail. And even though it doesn't have great long-term retention, um, just because of the top of the funnel is so good, it ends up becoming a really, you know, long-term product. And the people who do stay, they, they will stay for long periods of time. So, you know, it's not really like a one-size-fits-all KPI, but more that uh, we think that the business is going to be around for a long time, that we can add a lot of value to it, that there's upside, uh, and that the, there's a passionate fan base around that product. Yeah, that makes sense. Because um, you do have like quite a big difference, right? Like Realm of the Mad God, I'm assuming like the content and stuff that you're actually producing is more like cosmetic driven zombie catchers. You're tr- probably producing a lot more like levels and, and content, but then when you're getting into the mid core games, right? Like then it's, and it's about like actually keeping that community running. Uh, I'm wondering like just how different each one of these games has to be in terms of their live ops and what they're actually producing. Yeah, they actually are very different. And, and that's why, you know, you have to have dedicated teams for these, these games because they require different, different expertise and different, different focus. Um, Realm of the Mad God is very much all, all the games that we we run are have some sort of dedicated fan base that you have to manage. So there is a pretty heavy community oriented or community management orientation for the company. And one of the things that we really pride ourselves on is having this direct communication with the player base, which kind of sets our compass on how we continue to operate the game. Uh, and I think that's something that's actually going to be really important for Mike and Rogue as they they take over glory as well is that i know that is a very rabid community as well so that's one of the challenges that 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 that's part of this business as you take over other people's games is that they have expectations Uh, and that's a little bit of what the the article is about is that there's there's these expectations from communities and you have to manage them properly and the more core game is the the bigger the expectations the more casual the game is maybe a little bit less um but there's definitely differences whether you're focusing on uh, heavy on community, heavy on just monetization or top of the funnel versus veteran players. Um, those are the things that are going to vary game by game. Cool. Um, oh, and one other thing is, uh, so Realm of the Mad God is a action RPG. The degree games are more um, like traditional RPGs. So the systems kind of define what the operations is going to be. So we, uh, you know, when we take over a product, the first thing that we try to define is what's the content treadmill. And so like, what's the thing that needs to be produced all the time? So for uh, the games we took over from Gree, they're very event-driven. So there was there are these big Guild War events that are happening all the time. So there's lots of optimization around that that we, that we do on a, on a weekly basis. 
which is realm of the mad god which you mentioned is more cosmetic driven um and it's also very player driven so in that game we built a lot of ugc tools so we allowed the players to generate content for us uh, and then we just helped facilitate that process as well as adding dungeons ourselves and building more deeper systems that's also part of it and zombie catchers is, is very much top of the funnel optimizing all the new users that are coming in after uh, optimizing the uh, the ad waterfall and making sure that the, the game is just operating in a really smooth way. All right, cool. Uh, Should we move on? Okay. Yeah. Um, so Super Evil Megacorp uh, just raised another round of uh, $10.5 million to basically what seems to be focusing on funding this game called Project Spellfire. Um, but they're also um, moving operations to of Vainglory to Mike Delat, as we talked about before, and Rogue Games. Um, what, was, what was interesting about this article is like cloud first, streaming, cross platform, minimum friction, you know, like all these words have one thing in common. They're like the biggest buzzwords in gaming at the moment. So it seems like the PR guys were working overtime <laughs> to get this piece, you know, filled with as many buzzwords as possible. Um, so a quick backstory here. So like Bangalore was released, I think in November of 14. Um, and in the past five years, it's generated about $41 million in revenue on $33 million in 33 million downloads, according to Sensor Tower anyway. Um, however, the company has raised 71 million since September 20, 2012. So it seems like there's something fishy in Poughkeepsie, or well, that's not the expression. It's something rotten in the state of Denmark, or whatever the expression is, who cares? But nonetheless, um, when I was at Kabam, we actually looked at Super Evil Megacorp and kind of natural and natural motion um, in kind of the same way is that they were kind of the poster children for why high fidelity games don't generally work on mobile. Um, you know, both teams made absolutely beautiful games with you know really high production values detail animations, physics, precise control schemes, et cetera. And all these strengths, I think, just came out um, exactly the opposite in, in terms of what actually works on mobile in North America and Europe. Now, you fast forward seven years, and we've seen, seen some success for high-fidelity games. You like Fortnite, PUBG, obviously. Um, but still, if you look at the top 50 revenue in the U.S., um, you know, 90% of them or more of them are kind of low-production value games like Homescapes, Coin Master, Tomb Glass. <laughs> Game of Thrones, et cetera. When I say low production value, I'm not talking about, I'm sorry, I'm more talking about like fidelity of graphics, controls, animations, et cetera, not like depth of gameplay systems and social systems, et cetera, which I think are critical to success for most mobile games. But I, again, I think the challenge is to build these high fidelity games that are really taxing on the machines themselves, require you know higher end phones across the channel, longer play sessions and precise controls. It just doesn't really work that well on mobile generally speaking. Now, there's clearly exceptions, particularly in China with um, you know, their MOBA games, but in general, the US just seems to be the same, and, and North America and Europe seem to be the same from that perspective. And I would also argue that the kind of the success of Fortnite and PUBG with cross-platform and, and their success on mobile could send people down some serious rabbit holes that could get them in trouble. Um, then I guess the other thing I worry about in general with this raise, although it is from Andreessen, those guys are pretty smart, is that $10.5 million doesn't seem like a whole lot of money to bring a game of scale and size to something on PC and consoles in particular. Like it takes quite a bit more money to make a game for that. Um, you know, Andreessen obviously has some deep pockets and they're super aggressive. So, you know, maybe they have, maybe they'll have the patience to see this through, but, um, but I hope, you know, like this game is successful. I mean, I, you know, it's really hard to see what this game is. I really have no visibility into what it is, frankly. Um, but, you know, from a positive perspective, they do have a solid team of great creative people. And I think they have the ability to, to deliver a hit. I think, and also I think console and PC is a much better fit for their style of games that they make. And, um, and hopefully they see some success with Spellfire and then they have another chance as, as a shot on goal, uh, you know, down the line as well. But um, I think you know this game, the Spellfire game, is going to be a really big test of their, you know, ability to execute against, uh, you know, a bigger game, you know, something that's, you know, across all the big pl platforms out there. What's your thoughts, Joe? Uh, so Ken, just curious, but were you guys contacted about this deal as well? I mean, as we spoke about earlier, there just aren't that many live ops companies out there. No, unfortunately, we weren't in the running. Um, so this was definitely something we would have loved to have been involved in. 
But uh, unfortunately, no, we weren't involved. Got it. And by the way, I, I actually am a big fan of Mike Delat at Rogue and um, actually did a video interview about Rogue on the Game Makers YouTube channel. And I'll put a link in the show notes for that. But it does seem like Mike Delat, to your point, Eric, is a... Uh, He's like the ultimate deal closer. And uh, in terms of, you know, how they're going to operate the company, I think it was mentioned, it does seem that they're going to be partnering up with an Indian team. My read of the play and what they're doing is that it sounds like it's primarily a a straight up cost play. So you've got the Indian team with a much lower cost structure to reduce ongoing OPEX. Uh, It sounds like they've got platform relationships. One of their guys, Matt Casamassina, was longtime at Apple Seems like he's got fantastic relationship over there. So I guess my read again is just basically reducing costs and then gaining platform support to increase organics. And so the only tricky part here in the part that I'm not sure about, just not not being completely up to date in terms of Rogue, what Rogue is doing is uh, whether they've got substantial live ops optimization experience. And so, you know, is this just a straight up cost and platform support play or do they have a plan to also increase KPIs over time? I guess we'll see what happens. And then the other issue is just what the relationship is, right? I mean, if it's a you know, master-slave relationship, that usually works out a little better than if there's like the typical two-office problem where, where people are get, get upset at each other and there's a lot of politics and stuff like that. But that would be my take. Uh, Adam? Yeah, um, as much as like we want to talk a lot about the live ops for this, handing it over to Rogue, the, the cloud first pitch, I don't know, especially for 10, <laughs> 10 and a half million. <laughs> really? I, I don't know. I, I just, I don't buy that at all, especially like just how, and what, what does cloud mean in this case? Is, does it mean like they're going to be going to, like, is it a streaming first thing? Like they're going to Stadia first or are they, or does it just mean that they have a cloud server and they have dedicated servers and it's like a Minecraft game? I, like what, what does cloud first mean? Yeah, I, you I know, know. I, you know, I hate to be c- c- cynical. Um, <laughs> I'm sure you. Oh, really? <laughs> you hate being cynical. Eric. I yeah. hate it. My 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 sense is that these are just the buzzwords of the day. Uh, it's part of probably the, the the investment strategy, and it's like you know, I think it just it it ticks the box of of things that people are willing to invest in. You know. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> If they said they're doing a mobile free to play, you know, strategy game, like I don't think that would get any interest. You got to add cloud, you got to add synchronization across multi platform, cloud based, you know, server infrastructure, blah, 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 and then win, 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 money, 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 right? That kind of thing. So that's my cynical take. Man, I'm just going to raise on like some like cloud first game like this kind of thing and just build the, build a game that the market actually wants. Sure. Okay. Um, but no, I'd actually be really curious to, to talk about like Vainglory and how much uplift we actually think is possible with a game like that. Um, and it, we, we talked a little bit, Ken, about like which genres are a good fit. And in this case, we're talking about a synchronous MOBA game, right? which from my situation or like from my point of view is all about like maintaining really, really healthy matchmaking since that's kind of crucial for your retention, which of course needs pretty high player counts at all times uh, with quality players. Um, And looking at Sensor Tower, the game is doing better than actually I thought it was. Honestly, I thought it was almost completely dead, but Sensor Tower has it at like less than 8K a day and declining, Um, less than 5K downloads a day and declining. So whatever rogue sees in this right it doesn't look like it's stabilizing yet and because it's a sync pvp game it means that like it can only go down they really need to stabilize those player counts um so i'm assuming the live ops fuel for this type of game is actually like heavy on cosmetics maybe cosmetic events um new game modes um to try to keep the core coming back and playing um but i'd be curious ken on what type of content features you think would actually turn around a game like being glory if this is like a, a if this would be an appealing project for, for DECA? Uh, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say it's a necessary, it needs to be turned around. And, you know, one of the challenges that you have when you take over a product that's been around, well, that has some success and has a pretty big audience and it's a number of years old is that you don't want to change it too much um, because you just piss everybody off in that way. So, you know, my guess is what they're going to do is just feed what's already been done and just try to continue to feed that user base. 
And, and even though it's getting less installs, over time, what you have is a higher concentration of really engaged players. So as long as those engaged players stick around and they get fed enough things to do, um, the game will stick around for a while. You know, if you look at League of Legends, it's 10 years old now and it's not going anywhere. So it's really just a matter of size. And what size is it going to stabilize at? Even if it's not getting a lot of new users, it'll still have some kind of audience. It's just a matter of, is it big enough for all these companies to eat, eat from the pie? Yeah, I, looking at the metrics though, like I'm assuming that like revenue decline is probably a pretty good indicator for like how many active players that they have, right? Um, so I would be looking at that. Like I, I agree, downloads per day is only like the top of funnel metric if they can retain that player base. But if the download or if the revenue is declining, that's a pretty clear sign that those players aren't paying and probably aren't even there. Yeah, it's true. I I don't know it specifically. I don't have all the detailed data, but. You know, with a competitive game uh, like a MOBA, you know, you you have like kind of limitations on what you can change because and you can add different game modes and, and that's pretty much it. You don't want to add too much pay to win. You don't want to change the game too much for the people who are already dedicated since you're not getting a lot of new people. The focus ends up being more on how do you feed the really dedicated veteran players. And that's the tricky part about taking over a game after it's been around for a while. So... If there was a playbook, then everybody would be doing it. Um, and But every product is going to be different. And that's really the tricky part is figuring out together with the players what's acceptable and what's actually going to make the business perform better. Yeah. Maybe mobile esports is the solution. <laughs> esports, virtualized. <laughs> virtualized currency. Oh, well, we got to throw blockchain in there, right? They're going to throw <laughs> <laughs> okay, let, let's move on then. Um, the third article, uh, Supercell, Cans, Rush Wars. Uh, that's Pocket Gamer's <laughs> title. I, I wouldn't have said it like that. Um, Supercell actually had a blog post here. Like, uh, Supercell decided uh, to actually stop development on Rush Wars. Um, if you remember the timeline on this, it was launched, uh, I think it, it was launched in August. So it's been roughly about three months, uh, maybe a little longer um, in soft launch. Um, Metrics-wise, it reached about $0.55 cents RPI, um, and you can see based on just kind of like the downloads and grossing rank, it probably only reached this high of an RPI just because of uh, poor overall retention, which is sad to see. Um, Supercell announced that um, Rush War is actually intended as a build and battle game for a more casual audience, um, but uh, decided that that approach just wasn't working well enough with the audience. Um, what's interesting for me about like this decision, uh, as sad as it as it is to to see it, like just how fast it was in comparison to something like Brawl Stars. Like obviously within Supercell, all these independent teams operate. Each team makes their own decision on whether or not to stop and start. So trying to assume that Supercell as an organization um, makes these things is probably not the right approach. It's this team decided this is probably not the right game to keep moving on. Um, but still, it was a pretty fast turnaround. The team really only did one major update, um, and that was to remove the transparent loot boxes from the beginning and then do this approach where every few boxes you actually randomize unit selection. On top of that, they did some like bug fixes, some balancing updates, and then it seems like they made the call. Um, from my sense from playing the game, it never really got to a point where the strategy game was really, really deep enough to actually convert players to actually retain for the long haul in comparison to Clash Royale, Clash of Clans, etc. Um, the core gameplay actually quickly moved towards a pretty simple counter strategy um, with randomized loadouts that really didn't help the situation, um, where essentially you were just picking units to counter the other ones, and if you didn't have them, then you lost the round. Um, the game never really, really had the same viral growth that Brawl Stars has, so this is probably likely why they decided to stop it. So if the retention was poor, the DAO was probably dropping so far that it wouldn't make much sense to continually update the game just because the players weren't going to be sticking around. Um, it's clear that the team just wasn't going to be in the mood for a Brawl Stars, Brawl Stars style comeback over the year, um, since if the players had already spoken that they weren't interested in the concept, the core audience is probably already gone and unlikely to come back due to retention. JK? 
Yeah, so in my view, I think the biggest weakness of the game was the relationship between the amount of strategy or the perceived amount of strategy relative to like the actual agency and driving outcomes in the game. And so I personally have not been a fan of the gameplay. And so, you know, the, the strategy of initial placement of, of units to how the ultimate outcome of the battle wind up just seemed, in my opinion, just a bit too random relative to say Clash Royale, where there is a very clear tie between the strategy, the micro actions and the outcome. So uh, again, there was just, you know, too much of that kind of strategy or, or you know, perceived strategy relative to the agency and driving outcomes. But, you know, it's it's too bad. Uh, and and I, 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 like you, was kind of surprised that given how much time they seem to have invested in Brawl Stars that, um, that they, they kind of uh, pulled the plug that quickly. I. I kind of felt like they would just keep working on it and, and get it to work out somehow in the end. But um, I, I guess I was wrong on that part. Yeah. Uh, to your point on the design, right? Um, what do you think that the key elements are to make something like an auto chess work, but Rush Wars not work? Because like, I would say that they're fundamentally pretty similar, right? Like your agency or your choice is pretty limited to like unit selection and placement on a grid. But then, like the outcome is somewhat random in terms of those two lineups Although go up I, against I, each other. Yeah, but I think in the auto chess case, it's progressive, right? So, like, there's a round, and then you're still continuing the strategy that developed in the previous round. Mm -hmm. and you're upgrading, and there's like this continuous path, and um, there isn't the perception that the actions that you have, well, that the actions that you have in terms of unit selections are, are really what's going to drive outcomes and stuff like that rather than like, because I, I didn't feel like, you know, I mean, there was some, you know, sort of tie between the, the you know, kind of unit placement and selection to the outcome, but not not a lot. And, and then the, the strategies that existed, there were only, you know, at least from when I played, there were only a couple of strategies that seemed, seemed to work. Mm -hmm. And then they would tend to dominate, right? So, yeah. No, I completely agree. The drafting is pretty important from auto chess, which is missing in this component to actually create enough design space to actually counter people and feel like you're doing something smart. Eric or Ken? Uh, you know, I'm a very simple man and I think it's a simple answer. I think the KPIs are weak. There's risk of cannibalization with Clash Royale. Clash Royale still makes 25 to 30 million a month. So why would you risk it on a game that just didn't seem to be working? So I may be too simplistic, but that's what I'm running with. You think there's a lot of cannibalization between those two products? They're exactly the same game. Well, it's the same user base. Come not on. Exactly. This. I mean, this, they're, it's much less synchronous. I mean, it, I think they were setting Different themselves IP. up. Okay. They, I think they I think were setting themselves up. It's not Clash of Clans and, Cl and Clash Royale. That's where you can see definite cannibalization. But those games are completely yeah. different. Yeah, but it's the same IP. I don't think people, I, I honestly don't think that the, uh, the, the Supercell fan base kind of differentiates <laughs> these games at all. It's like the same style, the same kind of characters. The same That's true. Supercell fanboys, they probably will play everything. Right. And so sure. you move 25 to 30 million a month to a game that only can make like 5 million a month, right? You're That's going to run true. into the same train wreck that they ran into with, Super, with uh, Clash Royale, right? I don't know. But that's my simple take. Ken, I've got a different question for you. If, if you were to approach Supercell and say, hey, we want to take over. <laughs> 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 chance for that in your opinion? <laughs> well, I know they're very protective of their products and they're very protective of their time as well and focus. And this is exactly the case that, that we're trying to solve for. Like for them, if it's not a game that's going to make a billion dollars, it's just not worth it for them. That's the same for them, same for King, same for Kabam. And that's funny because this game probably would have made multi-millions a month uh, easily. Easily. And for just for them, though, it's just not big enough. But for any other developer, I mean, people would die for that. And, of course, we would be. <laughs> if they want to knock on our door and, and give us their product, we'd be happy to oblige. But yeah. just, just, just ask Mike to negotiate on your behalf. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I, I'm pretty sure that they uh, have a proprietary engine, right? So if they want to actually sell... Yes. Uh, Rush Wars, that would actually be opening up people to, to their proprietary engine, which I don't think they'd appreciate. Right. But yeah, that's uh, that's something that's always going to be the case, and it's only become a matter of time. But of course, they're not they're not hurting for money, so it's really about the motivation. What's what would be their motivation to to continue on? They're not driven by just money, so for them, I'd say it's probably a pretty low chance. 
Got, Got it. it. All right. Well, the, the last article, uh, we're going to go kind of revisit the BlizzCon thing because it is a big, big deal. And they had quite a big announcement. So we just kind of went over it briefly last time. So after some digestion, let's see what we saw out there. So the first big thing was the apology right, of this whole Hong Kong fiasco. And frankly, I thought it fell a little bit flat to most people, but I don't think anybody cared anymore. I think there are like six protesters out there. <laughs> you know, like, so I think, you know, I, my, my whole thing with my clients was like, this thing was going to blow over fast, you know, as a new, new cycle now is focused on the impeachment hearings. No one cares about Hong Kong, right? That's just the way it works, but that's as political as I want to get. Um, so the next thing was Diablo 4. So I think I said this before, but I think this is exactly what the audience wanted for Diablo. Um, the game looks light years away. Like they basically said it was far off even for Blizzard standards, as I said last time. But my perspective, like the two biggest things, the additions to the game that I think will be interesting is the PVP and uh, the microtransactions for cosmetics. Um, PVP is, is a tough ask because it's really challenging to balance PVP in a looter shooter with multiple classes, right? And that's part of the reason they never released it as a feature for Diablo 3, which was originally supposed to happen. Um, and I can't believe I'm actually saying this, but I think the cosmetic microtransaction things make sense for this game. Yep, you heard me right. I think a pure cosmetic economy will work. Who is this for man? Diablo. <laughs> Who is this man? Where did he come from? Because <laughs> these fit the core, the core criterion of building a amazing uh, cosmetic economy. Because the game is huge, it has a huge diehard fan base. You can create some amazing gear and outfits that are visible in almost every moment of gameplay, both uh, to other players as well as to yourself, and particularly in groups and in PvP. So that is a recipe for success for cosmetics. Thank you very much. Um, now, again, this does not mean that a pure cosmetic economy can work for every PC console game, um, particularly a single-based, single-character RPG. So I'm not going there. But for Diablo, it's going to work because it's going to sell 10, 15, 20 million units probably when this thing comes out in 2024, right? But yeah, um, key thing is the scale. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, and 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 they have. They have, I mean, as a studio, as an organization, they have experience building the cosmetics on top of, of games. Uh, and, I, and I think they, they probably will be able to do it pretty effectively and efficiently, I would imagine. Um, so I'm excited about Diablo 4, no doubt. Um, but unfortunately, it's going to be a while. Uh, Overwatch 2. You know, upon further reflection, I think, I think this game is going to be a tough sell. I, I, I may be wrong on this one. This one, these are hard. Um, I was dead wrong about it. Overwatch the first time, I will be honest. I did not expect it to expand beyond uh, the, the way it had. I mean, it just was, it was a phenomenon, right? Um, I don't think it's going to be a flop. I think it's just going to do reasonably well. But, I, you know, I just think reaching its former glory seems impossible at this stage. I think there's just too, much, too many competitors out there that are taking the time for this audience. You know, whether it's Rainbow Six, PUBG, Fortnite, you know, now Call of Duty. Um, uh, forgetting. <laughs> I forgot EA's game. Uh, Apex. Apex, Jesus. Um, I think it's just going to be hard to get people back. And uh, and I think this falls into the same trap as Destiny and Division in the sense that the game feels way too similar. Uh, and it, and the people that have tried it and liked it, you know, will come back, but the people that didn't like it are not coming back. And so I think it'll just be a much smaller game than the original is kind of what my longer term prediction is. It does look like it's coming out next year but in that sense it kind of looks a little bit rushed you know it kind of feels like destiny 2 where they just seemed that they needed to get it out next year and so they built some cool new features that may on the margin be attractive but not a full enough experience to either broaden the audience beyond what they got before or likely bring other other people back but you know that this is you know as we get more details on the game you know maybe my opinion will change um and we'll see what the pre-order and buzz metrics and stuff like that are but um and then finally the the wow expansion no not finally but the, the wow expansion so i, I pre-ordered this thing day one so i'm like i'm 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 in no matter what i mean they, they could just throw a load of poop out there and i'd buy it but but the the key features to this game really are the uh new character customizations they are squishing the levels to level 50 their new level cap will be level 60 and the really cool thing is they're revamping the leveling system for alts to so it's like 50 to 70% faster. And then they're allowing you to basically level up in any uh, zone that you choose, you know, whatever your favorite area is, which is quite cool. 
obviously they're gonna have more new zones, new dungeons and a raid. Um, and then they're having this covenant system, which I can't quite understand, but fundamentally it's kind of the faction system that bestows powers onto your character based upon the faction that you choose. So fundamentally my overall take on the WoW expansion is that they're streamlining the experience for existing players. Um, they don't really have a lot of new features that are going to attract a broader audience uh, of lapsed players, but they will bring back the the normal bump of bringing back people that um, kind of left the game during this last expansion. But what it doesn't have and what makes a broader group of people come back, generally speaking, is they don't have any new classes or races or they haven't revamped the gameplay itself for each of the individual characters, uh, sorry, classes. Um, and they don't have any really improved graphics. You know, those are the type of features that really kind of bring them back. So, but I'll be there day one. Um, but I think this is primarily like a content update and quality of life update. Um, and for the Hearthstone stuff, I'm going to let AT take this one. I just don't get this stuff. So it's, it's, it's more you, JKA or AT, you know, Adam, you can talk about this Hearthstone update and you think this moves the needle for them. I just have one question, which is more a, a strategic question, and because I, I'm not, you know, that deep on console, but why for for Diablo? Why wouldn't you put Diablo on a more consistent, predictable schedule across multiple teams, similar to the Activision Call of Duty model? So they've got the three by three model, right? Uh, three teams each working on a three year cycle. So just just a question in terms of why that doesn't make sense for Diablo. Are you like a shill for Bobby Kotick or something? What is wrong with you? <laughs> this is exactly what I'm talking about. That's, like, that's exactly the last thing they would want to do. That's against the core culture of Blizzard, right? Uh -huh. To be on that kind of cadence. Now, that's what Activision wants them to be. And yeah. you're probably right in a lot of ways. But, oh, my God, no. No, please. Don't do that. No, no, but, no. but you're talking like launching a brand new Diablo every year? Every, let's say, you know, maybe every year is too much. But let's say every two years so it could be you know two by four two by five two by six whatever whatever it is but yeah i don't know like you think about what just happened with division two right and ghost recon where these are service driven games right like these have like really long tails of engagement and you think about diablo 3 how many years it took for diablo 3 to kind of get to a stable state which had like positive sentiment from the player base mm -hmm. um and it took a while right like i think it took at least three years until they got to their last expansion right yeah um I don't think you can go that fast with Diablo. The problem is, it's like it's stuck between this like premium business model and the service-based model that it actually really supports, right? Like it is actually a service-based game, but the, the player contract has always been set up to be a sixty-dollar game. Um, so the engagement yeah, I, I, of it I, almost ends up like being too long. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. Like so, so I would say actually it would work out as you know every like more like wow, where every year you're dropping a new expansion to the game, right? Yeah. Um, right. to, to reinvigorate the player base. Cause that was the problem with Diablo three is like, I bought it for every platform cause I loved it, but there was never new content to play. Right. The season play just never was interesting to me, but if they, if they honestly dropped a new expansion every year, yeah, that, that would, that would bring me back. Yeah. I, I think that's far more likely. I, I, what's ironic is like, I really kind of think that <laughs> Joe is onto something, right. They, they should have more frequency of this stuff. Um, and that's kind of what Bobby is going after with these guys. I just don't think the way that's the way these guys operate. So it's 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 going to be really challenging them for to execute against it. But I, I but I hope like yeah, again. I think Adam, you're probably right. That's where they're going to end up. They're going to have they're still going to have seasons. They're going to have all these crazy cosmetics to chase and and through gameplay and through microtransactions. And hopefully they have a better cadence of content. But just as a, I don't want to revise history here. Like they sold this thing off the shelves the last time, despite the the the, the people were pissed off because of the uh, uh, of the um, what do you call it the the auction yeah, the house the auction. And, yeah. yeah and all that stuff. But they sold off the shelves, right? But the, you're right, they didn't fix it until like two years later with I can't remember the expansion, but uh, but it was really Reaper, yeah, Reaper, Reaper of Souls, right? And that was the skew that they came out with on console right away. I did a lot of work on this one of the Kabam, but um, anyway, the point is is that. But since then, they yeah, you're right. They haven't done really jack in terms of increasing. They added one new uh, class, um, which I can't remember that, what it is, but the, um, the necromancer. Yeah. Yep. So what I'm hoping is that based upon what they've seen in the marketplace, they're planning on, you know, supporting the game more from a content perspective, um, along with the season stuff, uh, to help players get engaged. And if they do have a good cosmetic 
microtransaction model, right? I mean, that, that, that could lend itself to either further um, retention. I mean, do you agree or? Yeah, I agree. Adam? Yeah, okay. no, I agree. And, and I think if it is that pair between the content model and the cosmetic model, then it can work. Cool. Yeah. Um, so yeah, let's move on to the Hearthstone stuff, because to be honest, like in terms of the, the news, that was probably the only surprising bit. Um, right. Like they, it's obvious that the Hearthstone team, you know, they're building an auto battler, right? Um, so they obviously took the news of like team fight tactics and, uh, Dota underlords, um, looked at the threat of that against their player base. Um, to be honest, like based on public data, there hasn't been a ton of cannibalization signs yet. Um, but intuitively, right, like competitive turn-based tactics fans, right, that would be card battlers and auto chess are too similar. I, I, it, it has to be cannibalizing each other and it has to be a direct threat. Um, so actually the auto battler mode for Hearthstone just launched yesterday. Um, so it, it looks like a really, really accessible take on auto battlers um, where actually, you know, it still has that round play of eight players competing against each other against waves of enemies and then eventually against other players. And then each round, they're basically drafting up additional cards um, to basically synergize with their own deck. Um, so the, the main thing is that it's using cards instead of um, units. Um, and it's not grid placement. It's more like Hearthstone where it's just one single line, right? Um, so the question then becomes like, how do you actually retain the depth for that lasting engagement. Like that's great that they made this much more accessible just like Hearthstone did to CCGs, but do they have the depth necessary? Um, right now as the mode, the mode actually only has, doesn't even have an entry fee. It's called Battlegrounds. Um, it doesn't really even reinforce the card collection from Hearthstone. Like you don't pull cards in from your collection. Um, and so they really went with like a completely open model, which just says like, here's a new mode, come check it out inside of Hearthstone, which may be all right for bringing in players, but I think they actually missed a pretty big opportunity. Like auto chess, as we know, looking at things like mobile, as well as um, like just looking at the actual games, right? Like they can drive strong engagement, but it's just not a business case yet. Um, the RPIs are just pretty abysmal on mobile. Um, so I should have like, they have a pretty good opportunity of like, can we capture some of that engagement, but then actually build a proper business case for this, like a way to pay or earn to earn heroes, uh, which are actually within this game. There's like 24 different heroes that you can, that you have right from the beginning, uh, which allows you to you know, adjust how you uh, collect cards um, or have like a meaningful output from this mode into the main game. So like arena does currently in Hearthstone, you earn or pay for tickets and you get rewarded from auto battle matches based on your performance. Um, it doesn't even need to lock out players in the mode. So for now, it just looks like they're just trying to incentivize players to buy the latest campaign. So if you buy the latest campaign, I think it unlocks three additional heroes you can play in within this mode, but that's not really gonna move the needle. So my read is that it's unlikely to hit the same heights at all compared to Unlords or Teamfight. Um, and to back that up with one day's worth of data, it looks like Twitch stats show no signs of life in terms of Hearthstone getting additional players coming in. All right, I think we're done. Many thanks to Ken. And by the way, Ken, if, if people are interested in, uh, in your business or reaching out to you, how can people get in touch with you, Ken? Uh, you can just send me an email at ken at decagames.com. And uh, do, do you have any, any announcements or anything you wanna, you wanna say to our audience? Uh, if they really want to meet, uh, I'll be at Slush uh, next week. So, of okay. course, you will. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone's you can at Slush. Hang out with Mishka. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, by the way, I'm uh, I'm uh, doing a panel and talking to one of the MA guys at Zynga on Thursday night at five o'clock on Five Hundred Five Howard for this oh, event for Silicon. Yeah, 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 Silicon Valley Bank event. Yeah, I'll, I'll be there as as well for anyone going to that event. But. Yeah, yeah. So I'll be cool. peppering the M and A guy with questions. <laughs> Hopefully, not getting him in too much trouble, but we'll see. All right, awesome. So I think that's it, guys. See y'all later. See ya. Thanks, guys.